Kia and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Coach's Corner podcast. Today's guest is an absolute master of pushing the physical and mental boundaries of human performance. He's a Red Bull wingsuit athlete and was part of the Red Bull Air Force team that jumped off the Sears Tower for the Transformers movie, and his name is JT Holmes. Welcome in, JT. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. And where are we where are we talking to you from today? You're over in you're obviously in the States, but whereabouts in the States are you located? So I'm in the Sierra Nevada Mountains right now and I'm surrounded by a bunch of snow. Um and an incoming storm is making the day really windy, but uh beautiful and sunny. So um yeah, wonderful, wonderful springtime. Awesome. Wicked. Um can you, I guess for our listeners, there's probably a lot of our listeners probably have seen the Transformer movies, but probably not many of them knew who you were, who the person was that was actually jumping off the Sears building and, and flying around the Chicago city. But can you mm-hmm. kind of take our listeners on a journey of JT and how a kid from the Bay Area found himself bombing the slopes and jumping out of planes and off the mountains and buildings? Sure. So... At a young age, I decided that I wanted to pursue skiing, and my dream was to be a professional skier. Um, that actually brought me to New Zealand in the summers of uh, my of all through high school. So in 1994, five, six, seven, um, I would train in New Zealand, and I was very dedicated to skiing. And by the time I was 17, I was a professional skier, um, and this meant making ski movies and traveling the world and in my case it was with people who were typically about 10 years older than me um i on the day after my 22nd birthday my best friend introduced me to a parachute um we went base jumping for a weekend in twin falls idaho now mind you when i was in new zealand at age 14 i did do a skydive um, but that was just, that was a tandem jump. I didn't learn how to skydive. I didn't steer the parachute. I didn't, I just went for a ride. Yeah. Um, but for all intents and purposes, the day after my 22nd birthday was my first experiences jumping my own parachute. And so I did four jumps off a bridge and I realized at that moment that airborne sports are fairly easy. It's not a arduous thing to fall through the sky. It doesn't need, you don't need strength or balance. You just need a cool mind. And um, if you keep a level head and, and, and follow some simple instructions, you typically will have a safe skydive or base jump. And um, so at that point I realized, okay, all these dreams of mine of skiing off huge cliffs with parachutes or flying wingsuits, all this stuff that was on my bucket list it shifted immediately to my now list. And I just you know, was set my sights on learning all these skills uh, with airborne sports and then incorporating them into my um, skiing. So within six months of that, those first jumps, I was, I was flying wingsuits. I was uh, ski base jumping, which is skiing off of cliffs and then opening a parachute um and i was really just just having a time and and going for it and then um there was a period of time of about seven years where it was hard charging and 
and there was, you know, my ski career was going great. And we were, I, we were, you know, pushing the boundaries of human flight and in, in, in different realms, including ski base jumping and wingsuit flying. And, uh, um, and then, uh, lost my best friend, Shane McConkie. Uh, anybody who's listening, if, if you're familiar with Shane McConkey, he was, a uh, he's, he's known as one of the most influential skiers of all, all time. Red Bull Media House made a documentary called McConkie. That's M-C-C-O-N-K-E-Y. And it's a funny, um, entertaining movie, uh, lots of great action. And, uh, you know, it's got a heart-wrenching end because the protagonist dies. Um, so I lost my best friend. Um, and this was kind of right around the same time that the world was noticing that these wingsuits were a thing, right? Um, yeah. And it was in the same year, actually, that Shane died that I got a phone call from Michael Bay or his offices, um, and they wanted wingsuits flying through Chicago for Transformers 3. And I hesitated for a moment because, geez, why take on the one of the boldest projects in the history of wingsuiting when in the wake of my friend's death, but I decided that it was something I wanted to do. It aligned with my core values, right? Every bit of me wanted to fly my wingsuit off a skyscraper. Um, I was, my, my ego was tickled by the idea of being on the big screen and, and my pocketbook was pretty excited about it too. You know, this is an opportunity for me to make some money. Um, make a name for myself and start a career as a stuntman. So um, I assembled a team and really we just stormed the castle. We uh, we got to do 14 jumps in the city. Um, some of those were out of helicopters where we would fly, we would exit the helicopter at about 45 knots and we'd fly our wingsuits between buildings or do an S-turn flight around a couple buildings and then open the parachutes and land. Um, really a dream come true for a base jumper. And um, we, we trained extremely hard for it because we knew that it, it was unprecedented what we were going to be doing. And it was going to be high pressure, high stakes and very advanced skill level. So we, uh, we trained really hard and we did a phenomenal job at it. Awesome. There's so much just in that, in your journey that is um, wicked. And just wanted to unpack a couple of things with you, if that's cool. So one is around the cool mind. So how do you get, how do you get a cool mind? Because I think that's really important maybe for the the athletes that are listening in just before they start get go to go out and play rugby. And you said that you've been in New Zealand, so I'm sure you, and that you've had a go at playing a game of rugby before. So how do you get your cool mind before a jump or or you think you do? Well, there's a lot of uh, a lot of techniques. Um, this is a topic we could spend a really long time on. Um, but uh, first of all, uh, I'd say the most important one is optimism. You know, you have to you, you gotta, you gotta believe that, that, that you've got this right. And, uh, and that you, you can do it and that you're going to win and that you've got what it takes. Nothing's going to stop you, um, from reaching that goal. 
uh, a subset of optimism is enthusiasm. Nobody performs well if they don't want to be there, right? If you'd rather be at home uh, or rather be somewhere else, um, or if you're pessimistic in any way, you, 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 you take a hike, like beat it. You, you don't belong. You're not a part of this because uh, you're not going to win. Um, I mean, if you can imagine some grumpy pessimist walking to the edge of a skyscraper in a wingsuit, wishing they were somewhere else, that's just absolute disaster, right? Because, because doubt kills performance, right? And if, if you have doubt in your mind, then you're, you've stacked the deck against yourself. You're setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. Um, so you need to eliminate doubt. Um, uh, there's, there's all kinds of small things that people do and that I do and that I've, I've been trained um, and introduced to some of these techniques from everything from breathing um, which, you know, breathing can help you calm down if you want to calm down. Um, you know, for me, it's four seconds in, four seconds out, no hold. You do that for a while, you will calm down. Uh, personally, I don't really worry about calming down. I'm okay with my hands trembling. I'm okay with um, an elevated heart rate. I think that's something that you can perform with. And so I'm not typically that that's not a high priority one for me, but if I do want to calm down, that's that's my technique. Uh, rituals, right? Uh, I race cars a little bit. I used to wear Puma underwear on race day, right? Puma is the fastest uh, animal in the animal kingdom. Um, these things people believe in, superstition, whatever, but it's good to kind of form habits. Now, I forgot to wear my Puma underwear one day and I won the Baja 500, a desert race. Um, and so then I realized that that myth was busted and <laughs> you, know, you can take that with a grain of salt. But, um, another one for me is if I'm going to be scared on top of a mountain. I like to have an apple, uh, preferably a green apple. The reason I like a green apple is it's tart. That tartness will kind of wake you up. Uh, I think it's good to restore your blood sugar, uh, and to, uh, you know, kind of, um, have a source of energy at the top before you're doing something. Um, the other thing is when I'm nervous, personally, I get cotton mouth, right? My, my mouth is dry. I can't eat some crackers, right? Cause yeah. I would need water for that. Right. But with a green apple, you know, it has moisture. So I can eat always, I know I can always eat it. And then also I can just chuck it off the mountain and watch it smash into the ground. And that's kind of fun if I don't want to eat it. So I like to have green apple. I believe these like rituals, these common, the, these habits for game day, race day, before a jump, I think that they're healthy and they actually are proven to be performance enhancing. Another one that I really believe in is compartmentalization, right? Um, you know, some psychiatrists and whatnot will tell you to be open with your feelings and you know, all this stuff, but that doesn't apply on game day. That doesn't apply when you're racing a car and it doesn't apply when you're about to jump off a mountain in a wingsuit, right? You need to be able to put a failure behind you, right? You, 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 you messed up, right? You dropped the ball. You, you know, maybe you jumped off the wing, the, the, the skyscraper with a wingsuit and you didn't mean to, but you went head down and you're kicking or you did an unintentional flip. Well, guess what? You're dead in four or five seconds. You're dead. 
So you cannot focus on the fact that you just fucked up. You have yeah. to put it behind you, put those feelings in a deep, dark box instantly, and you don't ever look at them again. You need to focus on moving forward, right? I've I've had I've made mistakes in a race car, and I've noticed that even a mile later, I'm still thinking about what I did back there. It doesn't help. You got to just put that somewhere else and perform, right? Um, what else is, is there that I believe in with performance sleep sleep is, is, I mean, it's, uh, it's for me, I struggle with it because my mind races, but sleep is our only zero calorie form of energy. It is the zero side effect form of energy and it absolutely brings mental toughness, um, and, and, and performance with that. So, uh, you know, I 100% believe in sleep. I think it brings wisdom. You know, you, there's that saying, oh, uh, yeah, let me sleep on it. You sleep on a big decision and boom, you you know, now it's come to you. So your your sleep is 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 very critical. Yeah. Um, so these these are the types of things that, that I think about and that I've observed over time that um, are common themes for elite performers um, and people that thrive in performing under pressure, high intensity environments. Yeah, no, that, that's a wicked list of, um, of things that you've, you've just listed in and around how you create your cool mind. What I also really loved is how you created your bucket list and turned it into your now list. Like it just seems, I think there's probably heaps of people out there today. Does You don't have to be a player or a coach, but you'll have a bucket list of things that you want to try and do by the time things are over, but there's no, from what I'm hearing from what you're saying, there's no better time than just now. And that probably relays back into how we connected. I was reading Stephen Kotler's book, The Rise of Superman, and I just found your story super interesting or your your story and your team story super interesting. And I just reached out to you and then all of a sudden you're like, yeah, well, we can do it tomorrow if, you, if you're ready to go. So um, that was, that's, that's really wicked point. Um, I want to jump into our first topic, and I just mentioned the book that Stephen Kotler wrote and wrote about. So around the the rise of Superman, and and in that they he talks about um, you and your team jumping off the Sears building for the Transformers movie. And what got me real curious, and why I wanted to reach out to you was. How do you actually train to fly a wingsuit? Because you just talked about, you just said you're skiing and then you've done one skydiving experience when you're here in New Zealand where you just jumped out of a plane and then all of a sudden you're jumping off a bridge with a mate. Like right, right. Um, so the way that I approach things is to dissect them into achievable or at least understandable um, lists or skill sets. So let's just start with, let's take the example of flying a wingsuit, right? Yeah. You need to, first of all, understand how to land a parachute because you can't just fly a wingsuit. You gotta, you gotta be able to open a parachute and then land it. So you need to, to, learn the fundamentals fundamentals of flying a parachute. I did that through a mix of skydiving, just a conventional course, right? It's 
couple thousand bucks and seven jumps and then you're welcome to jump out of airplanes around the world for uh you know for a fraction of that cost with your own gear um so become a competent skydiver and then um with when you learn to skydive you learn that you can actually you don't just fall straight down you can fly your body and cover a horizontal bit of distance um with out a wingsuit, you might be able to achieve a 45 degree angle just flying your body. Um, so you learn these body positions of flying forward. Uh, and then after that, you can put on different pieces of clothing that um, that increase your surface area and your power as a human wing right your your wingsuit is just it's all it is is clothing that that fills up with air and becomes rigid and then now you're kind of like a paper airplane or a um you know just any plane really you you are now a wing um so i after about 35 skydives i purchased a wingsuit um this was unconventional now you would need to do more but this was early in the days of wingsuit flying and there weren't very strictly established norms for how many skydives you needed before you started flying a wingsuit and by my logic i thought okay well i have all kinds of clothing in my closet and none of it is made specifically for skydiving except this wingsuit which is right so my logic was this wingsuit is actually an aid to to safety it's a it's a performance enhancement i'm going to be safer in the wingsuit than without it because in a wingsuit i'm actually going to fall to the earth slower i'm going to have an experience more like an aircraft's landing approach where you're you go downwind base final and you're 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 on a glide angle rather than just plummeting straight down like a stone yeah um so and it, i thought this this is this is going to help me have stability in the air rather than be an impediment to me having a stable flight or or skydive. So my logic was this thing's safe. This thing's made for this sport. I got this. There's my optimism. Jumping out, right? Turns out wingsuit flying is easy. Look left, go left. Look right, go right. You want to go fast. You dive the thing down, which really just tuck your chin and kind of let your body go into a dive. And if you want to go um, slower, flatter, you kind of flatten yourself out and elongate your spine and kind of make your surface area big. And all these things are very instinctual. It's um, flying a wingsuit really is a simple thing to do. It's, 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 it's just how you would imagine it works. Um, so, I found it pretty uh pretty easy to do. Uh there are there were some things about it that were tricky. It was at, in the beginning the wingsuits were not very fine tuned, right? So it felt a little bit like riding a skateboard with loose trucks. If you went really fast, you you would get wobbly. Um yeah. I would avoid that. Um but you know, since then now the wingsuits are really easy to fly fast and 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 you know, all of the performances is at your fingertips. But so anyway, 35, 40 skydives out of the plane. 
then get the wingsuit, get comfortable with it out of the plane. Then you want to learn how to jump in still air, right? If you're flying, if you jump out of a airplane, you're jumping out into like mm, 85 to a hundred knots of speed. So you already have wind. Um, but when you jump off a mountain, it's just, there's no wind. So there's no resistance. So it's just a different, uh, it's a different feeling. Um, and you need to get used to that. So you can jump from, um, helicopters can hover that, that helps. Uh, but it is a little different still because it's very rare that the helicopter is perfectly hovering um unless it's next to an object and then but the really good one to do is the hot air balloon right so if you jump out of a hot air balloon there is no wind because you are moving with the wind um and so you have that perfect still air environment and you also have nothing around no mountain to crash into so the hot air balloon is a really good one for learning how to wingsuit base jump and so at the time i was living in utah and i would go to in the mornings on the weekends there was places where guys would go and launch their hot air balloons and i would show up with a box full of donuts and a thermos full of coffee and just say hey well, what do you say can i go up there with you and, and then just go up and jump out um so yeah and then when you're ready to go do a wingsuit base jump you go find a great big mountain with a big overhang and a nice big landing area and and uh you know walk to the edge and try to kind of collect yourself and uh jump off so what's real interesting like for us common people that enjoy the enjoy the land a bit more than the than the air it's it, you've broken it down so it doesn't sound as high risk as what we like if we're watching someone jumping off a mountain flying down the side of a hill like that there looks high risk to us and and I'm sure it still is high risk. There's still those those elements of of risk involved, but you've just kind of gone through us and told told us how you break everything down. So then it you've taken out a lot of the the risk or the danger factor because you've done your, what your 35 to 40 jumps out of a parachute. You've jumped out off of helicopters, out of hot air balloons to try and replicate what it is like to do a base jump. How do you actually train for that proximity of being that close to a mountain, though? Like, what is because that feeling of jumping out of a hot air balloon into free air is probably completely different to having the proximity of a mountain face or or a skyscraper right by your nose, right? Right. Um, yeah. The okay. So what? with the previous question, I got a little distracted by the journey and telling you how I learned how to, how I got there. Yeah. Um, I got distracted from the, the dissection of really breaking down what, what needs to happen. Um, so if you're going to jump off of a, say we're jumping off a mountain with a wingsuit, you need to break it down. Right. So you have a certain amount of cliff that's vertical, say it's 800 feet. So you need to understand that you can for sure start get your wingsuit moving before 800 feet because every wingsuit base jump starts with a bit of a dive where you're going straight down almost, and then you start to glide out the mountainside. Um, so you need to have enough vertical 
to get to your, we call it a start arc where you dive and then you start planing. Um, and then you need to know, okay, how steep is my mountain? Can I fly better than the mountainside? Right. Cause if I can't outfly it, I'm going to smash into the trees or the rocks or whatever. Um, and then you need to, so you need to do math and know that you can go from um, your exit point to your landing area and that your glide angles, maybe you're able to do a 2.5 to one. That's 2.5 meters forward for every one down. Um, you know, you, you then, or three to one, you, you can look at maps and figure out, okay, that's an achievable flight. Um, and then you need to also break down, okay, can I open my parachute there? Is there enough room between buildings or between trees or um, what have you, or, or, or cliff faces? And then is the landing area acceptable? So you've kind of got this checklist um, and you go and do it. So then you want to step it up. I now want to fly next to stuff or above stuff in close proximity. Well, what you do is you start with what we call vertical reference proximity flying. And that just means you're flying next to a cliff wall yep. um, versus having the earth beneath you. Because if you're just flying next to something, you can always just turn away from it. And then now you have open space all around you. It's much more technical to fly horizontal reference, which is flying with the earth beneath you uh, at close proximity. Um, so you get used to flying close to stuff and you realize how, you know, you're actually really accurate. You, you, you don't just suddenly veer course and smash into things. That's not how it works. It's, it's really quite simple to hold a very precise line in a wingsuit. Um, and then it's just like, if you imagine you're driving your car, right. You don't think twice about keeping it right between the lines, you know, it's, it's an easy thing to do. Yeah. Um, and so then when you want to start flying above things, the way to do it safely is to never ever fly at your maximum glide achievable close to the terrain. Meaning if you're, if the, if the flattest you can fly, the most distance you can cover is a three feet forward to one foot down, right? Well, don't do that near the earth because you could stall, right? You could, you could, you could run out of speed. So the way to do it safely is to, to get into a very aggressive mindset and you need to just be dive bombing. You need to be going fast. Yeah. Because your speed is what can give you lift and take you away from the danger of the terrain. So if you're going, if you're, if you're flying steeper than you are comfortable and faster than your slowest speeds, you can always lift up and away, right? It, it's just like if an airplane comes down, an airplane has a certain amount of angles that it can fly at within comfort right it an airplane probably doesn't want to go directly down or directly up but there's a big range in between there that it can fly comfortably um and it has because it has a motor a propeller or a jet it 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 has the ability to come down and then if it doesn't like the landing it can lift up and go around right yeah but we we just don't have that 
ability, right? We, we, we don't have that ability to flap our wings and go up. We don't have propulsion. So you have to, you have to really respect being within your comfortable flight angles and always err on being faster than you think. So for me, proximity flying is just, you're just charging. You're not in any kind of hesitant sort of uh mindset. You're going really fast and you feel the crisp um, pressure in your wingsuit. And you just know that at any moment you can just fly away. That's so in that. So if you're, you're traveling that fast, I'm imagining your, your decision-making process around turns and are you getting too close to the cliff side? I like how far forward are you looking or are you? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, so the you, it's very important to pre-scout your lines, right? So maybe you fly a line kind of far away from the mountain and then you can review your GoPro footage or, or, or people use all kinds of different devices, um, GPS type stuff, but you can kind of look at what you did and consider a line um, that's closer or crunch some numbers and see if you could, you know, achieve a certain flight, a plastic buttress or a gully or whatever. Um, but it's a lot of times it's, it's just comes down to, you know, scouting something thoroughly. You, you need to go to the landing area and look up at the um, flight line. I use binoculars. I look at things from different angles and really, you know, really make sure that I know where I'm going. Um, and then I, I like to ease my way into it um, if I have that opportunity to do multiple jumps. Uh, if I don't, then, you know, you just have to take things a little bit more conservatively. Yeah. Um, but you bring up a very good topic, and that is that um, in a wingsuit, you're traveling so fast that if you see something that you don't expect to be there, your brain scientifically they've proven that you're you're going so fast that your brain can't adjust right you can't like you'll hit that thing because there's not enough reaction time for you to change your course yeah right that's why the importance of scouting is is so critical um and i think that there are many accidents that occur that are a result of laziness in scouting. Yeah. Although that's awesome. And I guess the we'll we'll jump into our next topic because mm -hmm. there was the there was I guess the real there was the juicy meat part of what made me want to connect. And you and the Red Bull Air Force team obviously had to train for the for the Transformers movie. You're jumping out, you're doing something that's kind of never been done before. And then there was this corner called Suicide Corner, which I can't remember how steep a turn it was, but it's one of those angle, one of those angles that couldn't have been done or very difficult to be to do. What was the training that you guys had to do in the Alps to really nail what your role was within that within the movie? And how did you train? Like as a team, how did you guys train? Okay. Um, so 
I went and scouted on behalf of the team that I had assembled. Um, at, at the time, I was not a Red Bull athlete, but I ended up hiring um, uh, John DeVore, Andy Farrington, Mike Swanson from the Red Bull Air Force, and then um, our friend Julian Boole um, from South Africa. Um, but we, I chose this really aesthetic line off of the Sears tower where we would, instead of jumping off the side of the building that was 1450 feet, just straight down to the, to the pavement, there was this other side where you actually were jumping off and then you were going to be in golfed in a a V of the architecture you're jumping off and and i think it was about 200 feet below there was these um sections of the building coming out at a 45 degree angle on each side so it'd be very visual and you're flying towards at this point you're flying towards a part of the city where there is no choices for landing and only once you clear that architecture you can turn 90 degrees right and then your the rest of the flight reveals itself and you go around 311 Wacker Drive and open your parachute and that's where your landing area is so this is a much more technical flight than just jumping off um and we found a cliff in Switzerland that was 1375 feet straight down um so that's very similar to the easy side uh and then we figured out well okay we're landing in these farmer fields but where how far do we need to travel to get to the parking lot on the other side of 311 wacker drive so we we just we took cones and sweatshirts and stuff and marked okay this is where we have to fly to and this is where we have to land and we all have to open our parachutes somewhat near to each other uh and we have to all land in this small area um and if if you don't land in that small area you know you have to do push-ups or buy beer or something like that right so we 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 incorporated a little bit of consequence there um among you know as well as just peer pressure but so what we did is we, we found this cliff and and this was our controlled environment where we didn't have pressure of cameras we didn't have to perform um you know we had bailouts where in once we got to the city we wouldn't be able to bail out to the left or the right and we we just figured out okay this is enough altitude to perform two s turns then open our parachutes in close proximity and then all land accurately in one spot so we we you know we we figured out every little piece of it right how hard do we turn what formation are we flying in who's leading who's following uh and then when we open the parachutes how are we going to do that in a tight area? You got buildings on either side. You only have you know, maybe 60, 60 feet, 20 meters of, of width between the buildings. So it's a pretty tight corridor um, to for opening the parachutes. So we had to, normally you would separate horizontally and open your parachutes. But in this case, we had to separate vertically. So what happened, I was leader, I would go first on all the jumps and I would go long and low. I would, I would fly the furthest and open my parachute the lowest. Um, the camera guy in the very back, he would pop up soonest and open the highest. And then the three other guys 
who were all Red Bull Air Force members and have done thousands and thousands of jumps together, they would open in the middle. Um, and they, you know, they had their own sequence of, you know, Andy would follow me, but not all the way to the bottom. Um, and Mike and John would, would separate in between there. So it, uh, it was all very technical, but also it, it all made sense. And there was enough room and enough margin for error to, to go ahead and proceed with these jumps. Yeah. And, and what's real cool is that it sounds like that there's a high level of cohesion within, within the team around what you guys are trying to do there. So obviously if you pulled your shoot too soon before somebody else, it could end in catastrophe or I'm also imagining like if somebody took, did a wrong turn or got their line a little bit wrong, same thing could happen. So how do you guys build that team cohesion? Yeah, there was there was uh, the trust building process there. Um, so right out of the gate, it, my gut instinct was uh, my my personal flying style was fast and and steep. Right, I'm a skier. I like to go fast. Um, I'm a product of the mountains, not the sky, and. I had to adjust my style to be a little slower and a little bit more just followable. Right. I needed to, it, it was kind of like I needed, I needed throttle control instead of just getting out there and just painting the gas pedal. I needed to roll onto the throttle, you know, and then ease off of it. And I needed to give signals before I turned and I needed to not do hasty, sharp turns. Like I needed to adjust my style to a style that was good for flying in formation. Um, and so the guys worked with me for that. Uh, and then really just by jumping together a lot, we, you know, everybody can anticipate the other person's movement. Um, and the, I think that the cohesion really it came from it came from the jumps right it came from the dedication to jumping and jumping together and in all kinds of different environments big mountains small mountains that training cliff that we spoke of we were jumping all over the place and we were jumping from helicopters or and off mountains like we we were nonstop. um yeah. and we had the motivation because we knew that when push came to shove and we were in the city, we were going to be scared, right? We knew that at that moment, there was no such thing as being too prepared, right? There was no, there was, there was no scenario where we could have regretted those extra hours and days of training, right? When, when our lives were on the line, we were going to draw upon our preparation and so we dedicated ourselves uh, entirely to that preparation. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was, it was, it worked, you know, it was great. So you, you talked about uh, a lot of, so there's, you guys did a lot of jumps. What was your post jump? Like, did you do post jump reviews around, like if you were leading and then somebody else was behind you, would they give you feedback around stuff that they saw or would you, like, how did that process work for you guys? Um, yeah, we would debrief for sure. 
we would look at the um we would we would look at everything from how tight our formation was to how much distance we covered to um were the turns too sharp too relaxed uh did we want to go faster or slower um how quickly did we start flying the wingsuits um and in general i was uh the i wasn't way below but i'd say like maybe i was one of the i was the weakest link right these guys all had 20 000, you know 15 to 20,000 skydives and and i had far fewer i had 2000 skydives but when it came to base jumping i had probably five or six times as many base jumps as any of them right like i said i was a product of the mountains they were a product of the sky um but they were far more technically skilled than me um and so we and i was the leader i was i brought the the project the job i made all the plans like i was um, and I, I chose the very best in the world because I knew that these guys could adapt to, they could fly the wingsuits that, that I wanted to fly and they could fly. Um, they, these guys, these guys are sky gods. They could do everything. Right. Um, so I surrounded myself with the very best in the world. Um, I adapted my flying style. I developed my skills exponentially and, you know, no doubt I was flying on the level, but one would never say that they are as good as Andy Farrington, right? Nobody in skydiving will ever say that because he's just, you know, incredibly talented, third generation skydiver, owns the drop zone, puts in more time and work than anybody. You know, it's just one of those things. So, um, you know, I, yeah. What's I was intentional with who I chose and, and, and we, we made a great team. Yeah, and what's cool around that, like you said, that you're the leader of the leader of that group. But it sounded, from what I'm hearing, those leadership qualities around you're adapting to to those around you versus where some leaders will be like, well, you need to come up to where I'm at. Where you're like, well, I'll take a step back and I'll I'll come to where you need me to be. And you talked about how you need to, you're you're really fast and tight with your with your flying lines but you need to be more on the throttle a little bit more versus full noise you need to be more relaxed on that how did the rest of the team like how did they enjoy that type of like they obviously responded really well to to that type of leadership versus you you could have gone in and just said well you need to do it the way that i do it what would have happened then would you imagine um, you know, I don't think that that would have worked. Um, I think that if any member of the team was too stubborn to adapt to flying the formation, maybe they would have needed to be replaced or it just, it wouldn't have, have worked and we wouldn't have grown as a team, uh, as well. Um, we, we didn't have any, you know, massive shortcoming of any massive, uh, holy crap, this is a barrier between us and achieving our goal. Like this dude can't fly or this, you know, this guy can't keep up or 
achieve the distance or start his wingsuit flying. Everybody was, uh, you know, we were all, we were all rock solid, but I, I think that there was a pretty big amount of teamwork that needed to to happen. Right. And yeah. we naturally fell into comfortable positions. Um, and, uh, and it just kind of worked. It, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess the question you asked is about the leadership style and 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 being willing to adapt. And I think that's critical. But I also think that it's kind of a question for the other guys. Like you might ask them, hey, how was it working with JT? You know, did he um, what was his leadership style? Right. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I can't speak to it as well as maybe they could. No, that, that's all good. And how long were you guys training together in I guess in the Alps for before I guess go day? That's a good question. Um I think that so the whole thing w- was about seven months um of training. We, I remember my first scout in Chicago was in the dead of winter. So call it December or January. And we shot the thing in July, mid July of 2010. So there was seven months there. It took me a month or two to assemble the team. And we probably really started training in um, February, March and out of airplanes on our own time. Um, and then when we did our rehearsal was in June, I believe in Switzerland. And then it was, you know, go home for a week, rest up and see you in Chicago. Uh, and, and we, we went straight to the city and did it. Yeah. Cause that's, I think that's real fascinating. The amount of time that you guys, we're able to build up that cohesion within your training program because we were you together a lot of the time during that during those training periods we uh, we'd travel together we would go and meet uh at different skydiving centers and 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 skydive the weekends away or skydive a full week away um Julian Bull from South Africa, he came and, uh, you know, kind of just posted up with me at my house. And um, we we were inseparable for sure. Um, for the most part, everybody had their own lives, their own stuff going on. But it, it, we never went more than a week or two without jumping together. Um, and and yeah, it was, you know, we were we were full, fully dedicated, fully immersed. There was not a day that went by between January and July that we weren't thinking about those jumps in July um, in the city. And another interesting thing is, okay, we got seven months here. Um, I scouted every single month of, of that, of that year. Right. I think I scouted December, January, February, March, April, May, right. Always going to Chicago um, to, you know, figure out where cameras are going to be finalized. You know, we, we went there and, and, and figured out some flight lines, but then some of the buildings wouldn't have us. And some of the, that was just, you know, you don't just 
get to do whatever you want in the city. So when certain doors open, certain doors closed, had to go back and, and figure out different things in the city. So all of this scouting, all this preparation, there's a team of people putting together permits and um, working with law enforcement, city officials. There's all kinds of stuff happening. And what does it come down to? We did 14 jumps and those jumps were typically about 12 to 17 seconds of free fall followed by 15, 20 seconds of canopy flying. So 14 jumps, call it 30 seconds total. That's including the parachute flying, um, seven minutes, seven months coming down to seven minutes of actual performance, right? Same. That's, that's the pressure of a project like this of Hollywood. And that's where that mindset of, okay, you know, you're walking onto this field right now. These are the minutes that really count. This is why you gave everything you had in practice, every other game. It's all for this, right? Key and defining moments. Yeah. And and would you say like at the end of it when you when you wrapped up your your fort on your last jump, what was what did you guys do after that? Like what was the what was the feeling that you guys had? What was the conversations you guys have? Can you can you remember those moments or was it just straight to the first pub and it was straight to the first pub. <laughs> <laughs> it was straight to the first pub. Yeah, uh, I, I I wish it was more intellectual than that, but it was just, you know, we, of course, we debriefed and and, and this and that, and, and and we reviewed footage and all that, but, um, you know, it, it it was an achievement, and and life just felt good, tasted good we knew we'd we'd pulled off something uh, that would go down in the you know history of our sport as notable um it turned out to be an award-winning sequence um we got a chorus world stunt association award um and we were nominated for screen actors guild awards i mean it was it was a it was a cool thing and we pulled it we didn't just pull it off we pull it off impeccably, right? If we said we were going to fly by the AC vent on the 35th floor of a certain building, we flew right by it. Yeah. I'm talking, we weren't, we weren't on the 35th or 30 or 33rd floor. Like we went directly by it. You know, we were, couldn't have been more accurate. We had zero injuries. We always landed safely. Um, we just nailed it. And that's, and I don't want it to sound like when I said, did go to the first pub as being like, you should have done more, but how, like I could imagine like players coming off the field or even a coach coming off the field after a really good game, knowing that you did everything that you could and you came away with the results, with the performance that you're wanting to see to just spend those, like you said, you just spent seven months scouting and training all around the world for seven minutes of film and then all of, all of a sudden it's over after your last 14 jumps, there'd probably be no other way that you guys would have wanted to spend that than just 
to take a minute with just the team yourselves to to have just a moment and talk about what you just said there, like the AC on the 35th. Yeah, well, we, we, we would reflect, yeah. We would talk about little things that we'd share our experience, right? Uh, I flew by, I flew past one building and I noticed that a guy's desk was messy, right? Inside the building. Um, and just little things that you took away from the flight, we would just share because we cherish these moments. And, you know, you got to realize like a base jumper would do anything to have these opportunities. This is like, if a surfer showed up to a break and it was perfect barreling waves and nobody was out and temperatures were perfect and the wind was offshore. I mean, this is glorious stuff. And, and, you know, we're jumping out of helicopters. The doors are never on the heli. We land in the city and then we'd get this jump in the van and our van driver loved us. And like <laughs> we're blasting Metallica through the city back to our helicopter that's waiting and just, you know, right back to it. Like the, just the pace is like, it was a dream come true. I mean, this was truly living life. We we're, we were raging. It was yeah. awesome. Can you, um, before we'll, we'll jump on to the next topic around speed riding. Cause I'm really, I'm pretty fascinated. I've seen a couple of YouTube clips, but can you give us, you just mentioned how you could, you noticed that somebody's desk was messy on one of the, in one of the buildings through the window when you're flying by. That first jump off the Sears building of the day, can you take us through those moments for you? What was what was happening? Do you, or do you remember? I do actually. Um, so the first jump was actually not our best one. Um, I had, you know, there was some question as to whether or not these permits were going to come through, and there was is this thing even going to happen? Everything that we worked for, is it even going to happen? And on top of that, the night before doing the job, we, I was, it was on my shoulders to negotiate how much we were going to get paid um, for a certain aspect of this. And so I had this high pressure negotiation. Um, and the reason that that, that that was left to the last minute was because we didn't know if the permits were going to come through for certain things that we were going to do, and it's hard to negotiate for a stunt when the stunt isn't perfectly defined. Um, so it kind of came down to the last minute. We were all a little culpable, me and the producers, whatever. But we worked it out, but it was a big deal for me, uh, you know, and, and to have done that negotiation and then try to go to sleep. I couldn't sleep, right? Like I really struggled to sleep that night. Um, and when I woke up and walked onto that building, I, I was groggy. I was not feeling up for, I, I was, I was, I was not feeling like you should when you are going to go and, you know, walk onto the field. Um, and I just put all my faith in the, okay, the minute I step off this building, everything's going to be fine, right? I'm going to have energy. I'm going to be razor sharp. Um, and it did happen that way. Yeah. But yeah. It, it it was, you know, I didn't have a clean exit and I went a little further left than we had discussed. And it was, it was the only jump where 
our performance, and we were the only ones who knew this, but it was the only jump where like we weren't as clean and as uh just flawlessly pro. It was uh it was a little shaky. Um and so that was really the experience that first time. It was uh I I wished that I had somehow gotten to sleep that night and I wished that things were a little different. Um but they weren't and it worked out. Yeah. No, that that's cool. And so can you take us through speed riding and what that is? And I'll probably put a little bit more um, meat around the bones around why that is. It's because in rugby, it's been going on for a hundred odd years. Nothing's really, nothing new has really been invented in the game. But every year we talk about innovation. What you're doing is really as innovation between skiing and and skydiving. So can you explain like what is speed riding and what is and kind of where the idea came from? Sure. So my favorite sports were skiing and and then base jumping, um, which is jumping off cliffs or buildings or anything of height with a parachute, right? So parachuting and skiing, um, my favorite sports. And um, so we were ski base jumping, which means you ski off of a cliff and then open a parachute. And that's actually pretty dangerous because you've skied off of a cliff that's so big, you can't ski yourself to safety. So you're putting all your eggs in the basket of transitioning yourself to an in-control participant of a new sport, parachuting, right? So you've, you've, you've kind of, you skied off the edge, point of no return. You, you're not going to um, survive unless, unless you transition to this other sport by deploying a parachute safely. Um, and it, it's actually a somewhat inefficient and cumbersome way to combine skiing and flying. Um, not only is it dangerous for the reasons I just described, but you got to have your skis and your parachute, and then you got to find a place to repack the parachute if you want to go do it again. Um, but then there's this sport of speed riding, which kind of gained popularity in 2008. And it is skiing with a high-speed skydiving parachute or some kind of it's a it's a wing that's kind of like a small paraglider, um, but more like a high-speed skydiving parachute. And the beauty of this is that you lay the parachute out and then start skiing, and then the parachute inflates and it pops up above you and now you actually have two ways to bring yourself to safety you can fly to safety or you can ski to safety and once you've lifted off now you've now you've gone to just flying yourself back to safety till you put your skis down again but um if you think of it in binary terms right you, you start with skis and a parachute you've got two ways to bring yourself to safety and then it's only once you've confirmed your parachute is good that you lift off and then you have one way 
until you land again. And now you're back to two ways to bring yourself to safety. So you're going from two to one to two, to two instead of from one to zero to one. Yeah. Um, so it's a lot safer. Plus, you don't have to have a perfect cliff. So you can do it in a lot more places and you don't have to repack the thing. So you just have all these things that make it a more welcoming, more achievable and more efficient form of combining skiing and flying. So to me, it was kind of the ultimate. And then in participation, it is extremely fun. Uh, it's, it's a lot like skiing in a video game because common hazards no longer apply to you, right? Here comes a, a forest. Well, you can either go stop before it and ski through it, or you can uh, fly over it. Or, you know, here comes a huge cliff. Well, you can just ski right off. Um, and, and it just, it's a, it's a wonderful form of skiing and, uh, it's my favorite activity in the world. Yeah. I know that's awesome. And that's a cool way, um, we break down of what, and so where did it, like, was this something, a birth child of, of you or was, were there other skiers and. No, so, so I, I was, there's a guy named Antoine Montant, a French guy. Yeah. And he. He and his friend Francois Bon were really the pioneers of speed, modern day speed riding, where you were actually skiing. Um, but you know, Antoine, he was the guy that was he was putting tracks down on steep faces that nobody else could um, ski, and he he had a style like nobody else. Um, and you know, a skier looks for fresh track powder, fresh untracked powder. Um, and a skier likes to go fast and carve their ski and, um, ski in steep places and, and ski high quality snow. And Antoine was really the guy that was doing all of those things with a parachute, right? He was using the parachute to go to places that were inaccessible to skiers and lay beautiful tracks down. And then he'd fly some more back to, you know, a normal type of ski destination for a landing um and, and you know this i saw him in france flying at the aiguille de cable car and i just i was blown away at what i saw and i just knew i had to learn it um and so my inspiration came from antoine montant yeah i know that's awesome well thanks for sharing that and what we'll do is we'll jump into our quick fast segment um yeah. and so you're inviting three friends to dinner who are they and what are you cooking Oh, okay. Well, let's see. Um, who, who, who I cook steak, typically a ribeye, um, and I do asparagus, Caesar salad. So it's 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 greens and it's uh it's high quality steak. Um, and uh, geez, I probably would uh you know if 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 these friends could be alive or dead, I'd bring my friend Shane McConkey and I'd bring Antoine Montant. And, uh, and then I, I, you know, probably being, you know, one of my dear friends that's, that's still around, you know, maybe Travis or John or my, I don't know, was just I'm on the spot, but that's who it would be. Yeah. Awesome. Um, one of your favorite sporting memories. Uh, favorite sporting memory is. Multi-sport descent of the Eiger in Switzerland. Um, this is combining three of my favorite sports, skiing, 
speed riding and base jumping. Um, and that was that one can be seen if you Google taking on the Iger. Iger is E-I-G-E-R. And that was a CBS 60 Minutes piece called uh, yeah, Taking on the Iger. And it was with Anderson Cooper. And that was probably one of the gnarliest things I ever did. And uh, one of my prouder achievements as an athlete. Awesome. Who's a coach, mentor, or teacher that's had uh, the most positive impact on you? Uh, definitely Shane McConkey. Um, uh, my friend Tim Dutton, who's a big influence in my life, also passed away tragically in a skydiving accident. And um, and then when it comes down to really learning stuff about skiing, um, uh, you know, when I was when I was a kid, I had some teachers that helped me out a lot. My friend Jeff Engerbretson taught me a bit about skiing. Um, there's, you know, my father, my mother. There's there's a lot of great influences in my life, but I've named a bunch of the critical ones. Yeah, awesome. What's one bit of advice you'd give a young JT starting out on his speed riding journey, or it's even his mm-hmm. man journey? Hmm. What kind of advice would I give my young self? I'd say I, w- I would, uh, I think a lot of it comes down to, I think a lot of success in all of these things comes down to time management and, um, and keeping in touch with your network. I think that, that, that we all have supporters around us. We have relationships that are worth fostering and nurturing. And, uh, I think, um, you know, in hindsight, a lot of the success that I've achieved is because of those relationships. And then, um, you know, the time management part is, is my biggest struggle in life is, is time management because I have so many different things going on. And I think that, um, you know, really being, being smart about the way you spend your time because it's really our only true currency in life. And if you let your days slip away, you're not going to achieve your goals. So I'd say that, that those, those are two, two things I would emphasize with a young me. No, that's, that's awesome. Um, what would be your go-to activity? So if you're teaching somebody how to speed, right, what, how, what would be their, their first time experience doing it with you? Um, well, we would go to a, we'd go to a really modest kind of boring mountain. Um, we'd go to a place where the parachute would just barely be able to get the person off the ground. Right. So they're not in a huge amount of jeopardy. Uh, and they just know that worst case scenario, they just kind of biff into the snow. Um, and we and and you just start you start lower on the hill and you start working your way up with each subsequent run or flight. So you know you start out where parachute's just kind of lifting you up and and you're you're skiing with the parachute, but you're not flying. And then um, you're adding a little bit more speed or a little bit of a steeper slope, and you just get the feel for it. Um, and it, it would be somewhere that has a nice high speed chairlift and a, a good crew of of, of friends and other uh, participants in the sport that are, you know, creating a welcoming, healthy learning environment and good vibes. Yeah. Awesome. And last question, we generally ask um, 
this to our coaches around what does being a coach mean to you? But from the sounds of this conversation, it's with a new sport, it's a lot to do about being a, um, a good bugger and, and being a good mentor. So what does it being a good mentor mean to you? But, you know, I think it's an interesting question um, as it pertains to airborne sports, because I've lost two best friends and dozens of other friends and acquaintances, right, uh, to, to airborne sports. So I don't actually, I don't encourage people to participate. I'm never the one who says, hey, I want to teach you this, right? I don't. I just don't do that. It, it to me, it's all about somebody else taking the own initiative. Um, and once they're, once you see that 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 they're doing it, you know, they're going to learn this stuff. Then I'm nothing but a resource, right? Uh, you get people that know me well or barely know me at all. They'll call me, and ask me questions, or email me, and 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 I will be a resource. I'll, I'll steer them in the right direction. But I I don't. So it's, it's kind of strange and I'm a professional at a sport that I, that I don't even really condone or encourage. Right. Um, I feel fortunate to have survived and thrived within these sports, but the, the cost of losing friends is, is real. And so I don't ever want to have it on my shoulders that, you know, it was because of me that this person chose this path in life. So I think a shorter answer to the question is um, be eager to help, but not necessarily the guy that is trying to reach every person and get them into your sport. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And that's a cool way to finish up. I just want to thank you, JT, for um, all your wicked insights and wisdom. I've written down, you've probably seen me. I've been yeah. down heaps of notes today. So, and I'm sure that our coaches and, and athletes and everybody listening in today are probably going to be doing the same. So really. Well, yeah. I appreciate you reaching out and I hope that, that what we've discussed is, is, uh, you know, maybe a source of inspiration or just at least a source of entertainment. Um, I, I have no idea, but it's cool to hear from you guys. I got a lot of respect for, for your craft and just, your position as a coach, um, you know, you have the ability to, to affect lives and um, inspire people uh, in a period of time, which is their a period of time of peak performance, right? Yeah. And that is a finite time in life and it's a special time in life. And if you can foster, uh, inspire people to get the most out of those years that's something they're never ever going to regret right those years do go away i'm 42 years old i'm past my prime okay i still have a hell of a lot of fun and i got a lot more uh to offer the ski and airborne industries and the stunt world um but i'll never perform like i did when i was when i was in my youth it's just life Yep. Um, and I'm proud of of how I spent those years. And as coaches, you can you can help people to feel the same way that I do about those those awesome years of life. So uh, it's a noble thing, and and I have nothing but respect. Thank you for calling me. No, that's awesome. I really appreciate it. I really love this conversation that we had with JT today. 
Uh, what I really enjoyed about it was, first of all, when he talked about getting into a cool mind and what that meant to him and some of the things that he did, and he gave us some really cool um, insight around how he gets into it, around his optimism, his enthusiasm to doing things. He does a bit around breathing. I really love the idea of he has an apple, and it has to be a green apple as well, just in case he gets like a little bit of a dry mouth and and all that type of stuff so and if he doesn't need the apple then he just throws apple away and he's he's down the hill or he's off the off the side of a building so i really enjoyed that part of part of the conversation i also love the way that he he looks at things when it comes to the jumps or the stunts that he does he breaks the skill right down um he goes out and he scouts it he makes sure that he's he knows the lines that him or his team are going through um, because he can't be any doubt within um, within the performance. And he talks around how doubt kills the performance. And so he makes sure that he does all that, all the stuff that they do around their trainings and to build that cohesiveness, I just thought was super fascinating as well. The fact that they, how much time they spend together to learn everybody's little cues or, or little little um, other bits and pieces around making sure that when somebody pulls their shoot, the next person knows that they've pulled their shoot. So there's a whole lot of trust as well um, reveled into that. And then uh, uh, one little bit near the end when he started talking about being a coach and all that type of stuff is that he doesn't force people to get into the sport that he's doing because, as he alluded to, he's, he's lost a lot of great friends to his sport it is a very dangerous sport but he doesn't get people he doesn't force people into it and he allows them to come to him and so when they do come to him it's no wonder that uh, they go to him with the amount of care and due diligence he puts into his craft to make sure that though those people that he's with are as safe as possible and and that's kind of like us as coaches when we get those our players let's build a a fabs environment that we talk about and bit layer in that safety and what does that safety look like because we want them to stay within the game we want them to become long-time lovers of the game and and all that type of stuff so i really love this chat with with jt and yeah it's pretty cool to talk to someone way different to um to what our sport is. I would have loved to, Jay did mention, JT did mention that he did do a couple of games of rugby. So it would have been cool to um, ask him maybe what, what he thought his experience was like or what he, how he enjoyed his ex- rugby playing experience. So, um, oh, well, that's maybe for another conversation with him one day. So I hope you enjoyed this, this episode. If there was some cool notes, would love to hear that you took away would love to hear it through a review on either spotify or or apple podcasts or if there's some cool stuff in here that you think other coaches or, or players um might take away for a bit then please i'd love it for you guys to keep sharing this podcast and keep growing it as much as we can because i think we're we're on to a really cool thing here and i'm i'm loving the conversations that i'm having with these with the coaches and loving the feedback that i'm getting from the community that are that are here listening in. So we'll talk to you next week.